Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Support for this show comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you may need Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Teddy Schleifer, the finance editor at Recode, in today for Kara Swisher. Today, we're going to play two interviews I just did at this year's Code Conference. First, we're going to play an interview I conducted with Raj Shah, the president of the Rockefeller Foundation. And then later in the show, you'll hear Kara Swisher and me talking to David Solomon, who is the CEO of Goldman Sachs. But let's start with Raj Shah. This year at Code, we heard a lot about what Silicon Valley's richest residents owe to people in need, and the reckoning happening in tech at large. And Shaw said that as recently as five years ago or so, representatives from companies like Facebook told lawmakers that, of course, they were saving the world. And they don't say that now. And I think there's a new responsibility. Frankly, I think that we're having a good conversation about, you know, should technology billionaires give more and, and how can they do it optimally? That's great. In addition to that, we need to be having a conversation of how can the tools of modern technology that are transforming every part of our life and our society be deployed to lift up and support those who are fundamentally locked out of prosperity and opportunity in the world. You can find full coverage of this interview and everything else from the Code Conference at vox.com slash recode. But now let's go to the Phoenician Resort in Scottsdale, Arizona to hear my interview with Raj Shah from the Rockefeller Foundation. Brief history lesson. You know, a funny thing has happened in the world of philanthropy over the last hundred years. When John Rockefeller set out to create the Rockefeller Foundation, sounds like a pretty good thing, a lot of people actually thought his idea was pretty bad. A great president with the name of Teddy, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, said something along the lines of, no amounts of charity with a fortune can make up for the misconduct required to achieve the fortune. Hundred years later, we're sort of beginning to have that same conversation. People are beginning to criticize philanthropic gifts because it might reflect some misdeeds needed to make that money. And the guy who's in the, in the hot seat today has to kind of manage that conversation. He happens to represent the Rockefeller Foundation, Raj Shah. We started with some history. Now we're going to do some math. Okay. Calculators out. The U.S. last year, Americans gave $400 billion to charity. At the same time, there's, there's more private foundations than ever, probably more press releases than ever about good work people are doing. American inequality, 40-year high. You can walk around New York, San Francisco, see that something's wrong. What's not connecting? Well, first, thanks for having me, Teddy. I'm excited to be here because we're very committed to the idea that the tech sector can do 
a tremendous amount more to lift people up who are locked out of, of prosperity and opportunity. The premise of your question is absolutely right. Uh, we live in extremely unequal and frankly inequitable times. If you were born in the 50s and 60s in America, there was a 90 plus, in fact, unless your last name was Rockefeller, there was a 90 plus percent chance you would do better than your parents. Uh, if you were named Rockefeller, that was a higher bar to achieve. Uh, by the time you look at the birth cohorts in the 1980s and 1990s, it's 50%. If you were born in poverty, a kid born in poverty in that earlier era, 50% of them would end up in the middle class. Today, it's less than 25%. Just as a thought exercise for this room, uh, so familiar with technology, imagine the world in 1981 compared to the world today and how much wealth has been created and who has benefited, largely the technology sector in particular. Mm -hmm. Over that same period of time, the bottom 90% of American households have seen their real incomes be absolutely flat. So the structure of our economy has changed because of technology and globalization. And uh, the only way we're gonna change it to make it more equitable is thoughtful public policy, renewing, re-inspiring our politics, looking at where science and technology and the tools that allow for such progress can be applied to lift people up. And that's where philanthropy can play a role, as risk capital to bring those ideas forward and to, to help instigate those solutions. You, you said the only thing that could do it is government. Is that, does that speak to the limitations of philanthropy? Because a lot of you know, people in the fundraising business you know, would say, we've given $400 billion to charity, maybe we need to give 500 or 600 or 700. Do you feel like it's a question of a billion here, billion there, or is, it, is the idea that like, private philanthropy is enough to sort of solve the promise of American inequality, is that just a false premise to begin with? Well, private philanthropy is not gonna do it on its own. Uh, by no means. In fact, it's more like the old Margaret Mead quote that a small group of committed people working together can solve any problem. And we believe that, but we believe in public-private partnerships. The, the greatest hits of the Rockefeller Foundation, and frankly of all of philanthropy, have been efforts to create human progress with the public sector mm. and with the private sector, not trying to replace it. I ran USAID before having this role. Uh, we had a $24 billion budget. Every year, the Trump administration proposes a 30% cut to that. And no one's gonna make that up with a little increase in private philanthropic giving to the poorest countries in the world. Right. So, so we, have to be, we have to know the game we're playing. And the game we play is how do we help the world's most vulnerable people around the world in low-income countries and here in the United States, where more and more people are actually locked out of real progress and opportunity, how do we help lift them up? And the answer is technology, science, partnerships with government, advocacy for ideas that can make a difference, and raising the consciousness of all of us that by connecting to that service mission, you can lead a good life yourself, but, but make a real difference in the society around you. So, so there's a new conversation in the, in, uh, in the philanthropy worlds, as I was mentioning at the intro. For a long time, people thought every found, everything with the word foundation at the end of it was a good thing as you know apple pie and baseball. Right now, there's a new kind of dialogue about whether or not big gifts, you know, big gift to a school, big gift to a museum, big gift to the Rockefeller Foundations or any other foundation, uh, is a cover-up for sort of the ways in which the wealth has been acquired. They can get good PR out of it without really having to advocate for higher taxes, for other ways to kind of reduce income inequality. Do you think that criticism is fair? 
You know, it's, it's probably, it probably is fair in that it characterizes some element of modern philanthropy. And there's, without question, art museums have, are named after families that have made their money in suspicious ways and, you know, and put their name on museums to kind of elevate their, the way people perceive them. The philanthropy I'm most familiar with, I worked with Bill and Melinda Gates when they set up the Gates Foundation, I now run the Rockefeller Foundation, has really been about solving big social justice challenges using technology, using risk capital, using a 30, 40 year outlook and taking real risks and making big bets. When we worked in the early part of 2000s, in the 2000s to set up the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, we put in place a 20-year project that raised billions of dollars from philanthropists and public sector partners, restructured the global vaccine industry, vaccinated 670 million children who otherwise wouldn't have done that, and saved 10 million so you, lives you, you, in poor countries. And those kinds things. of wins uh, really do lift up and change the face of poverty and opportunity around the world. And unfortunately, this current debate, uh, while sexy to discuss, kind of misses the point that that those types of grand projects can actually change the face of the human condition. So you see this as a 5%, 10% thing, not in terms of the gifts that are not necessarily in pursuit of a noble aim, but are in pursuit of a good story for the donor to tell. You see that as maybe a 5 10% issue, not the way it's been characterized recently, or at least by critics, as a 70 80% issue. Yeah, that's correct. I see it as a smaller percentage of total activity in the philanthropic sector. Now, I'd also make the distinction, you mentioned 400 plus billion dollars a year, that's true. The reality is the vast majority of that is museums and hospitals and universities, all, yeah. all of which is great and I give personally to institutions like that. Institutions like the Rockefeller Foundation that have been around for 100 years, we've been fortunate, I had nothing to do with this, but won two Nobel Peace Prizes for the yellow fever and the green revolution that moved a billion people off the brink of poverty and hunger uh, over a 30 year period. Those types of science-based, large-scale efforts to lift the human condition broadly uh, is still a very small part of total philanthropic giving. And I do hope that area grows dramatically. Do you think that Americans, or at least uh, you know, people in this room, or people in kind of high society have given too, have, have, have given too little scrutiny to kind of the ways in which kind of big donors give philanthropic dollars? Regardless of whether or not it's 5% or 80%, like, should we at least be asking the question more than we have? Sure, we should be asking the question. We should be reviewing progress. You know, we have efforts to, for example, end energy poverty around the world. There are 1.2 billion people who live without access to electricity. I doubt any of us would have been productive today if we couldn't use electricity. We've developed some new solutions, off-grid solar uh, systems and new ca capacities to use predictive analytics to identify which of the world's poorest people who live in the dark will actually pay for power. Uh, and, and we think we're on path to move 10, 20, 30 million people in India alone right. out of that condition. We should be evaluated four, five, seven, 10 years from now on did we succeed against that goal. And for each of our program areas, whether it's saving the lives of six million women and children in low-income settings, using predictive analytics and community health, or ending energy poverty using the tools I just described, we should be held accountable, we should publish those results, and, and people should uh, hold that, us that, accountable. That has not happened for a long time. There has not really been a culture of people necessarily well, uh, you valuing know, I, this. No, I don't, uh, yeah, I, I think it's, I welcome more, definitely. Uh, but I, I think it's a mistake to lump 
the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the MacArthur Foundation, the Gates Foundation, and you know, some super innovative things I think Lorraine Paul Jobs is doing with her philanthropy and so many others into the category of uh, you know, uh, discredited philanthropy. That, it's, it's just not. It's, it's high quality, high impact work focused on measurable results. And most of those institutions now, I'd say for the last 15, 20 years, have been in the practice of pretty rigorous evaluation and publishing performance. But the sector overall, uh, in my view, should be much more focused on uh, what can we do to create policy and political change mm -hmm. to make our nations, to make our economy more equal and more equitable. And that dialogue, I think, just needs more energy and more investment. I want to ask you about opportunity zones, which I know you're very passionate about. These are uh, part of the Republican tax bill that are intended to uh, incentivize investments in under-resourced parts of the country. Why should people think that this is not a tax write-off for billionaires? Yeah, well, first, first, let's talk about what they are. So opportunity zones are a, are a part of the tax bill, a bipartisan amendment that allows for deferred capital gains uh, tax payments on earned gains that are then invested in one of 8,600 zones that have been designated around the country as opportunity zones. Which is a, that's, that's, that's a lot of the country. It's in about like 10% well, or plus? Yeah, it's about 10%, right. exactly, of the, of the U.S. population. But I will say it's a, it's a population that is 54% African American and Hispanic American, 30-plus uh, percent poverty rate, 12% which is obviously you know, three, four times the, the current level unemployment rate. So it did target lower income communities and it likely will be a big influx of billions of dollars of investment into those communities. Our focus at Rockefeller has been helping the cities and community groups have a voice in how those investments are deployed and making sure that they lift people up in those communities as opposed to frankly raising asset prices and pushing them out. Now, some of the activity under Opportunity Zones will in fact just be a tax gift to those who would have made real estate development investments anyway. Or they move and, it over a couple blocks. Or they move it over a couple you know. of blocks and they do that. So there's no question that that's a risk and that's in fact a reality for some of the law. Our goal though is to prove that in some places we can crack the code and get it right and, and see real private investment drive growth opportunity and human welfare improvements in some of the tougher communities across this country. And this is the biggest tax incentive for such investment uh, post-World War II. Now, one other thing about the tax bill, going back to our sure. earlier point, the tax bill costs America $2.3 trillion over 10 years, according to the Congressional Budget Office. I didn't get to write or pass the bill, right? But if, if one could, I personally think, and our institution is willing to put resources into advocating for the earned income tax credit. If you took a trillion of that and put it into the earned income tax credit over the next decade, mm. you would help tens of millions of working Americans who work hard every day and cannot make ends meet, and you'd spur economic growth, and you'd have, frankly, a much bigger impact on poverty reduction than uh, and human improvement and opportunity expansion here in America than the way that tax bill was structured. Yep. And so to your earlier point, I think foundations, philanthropy, and everyone in this room, frankly, needs to be more aware of these big trade-offs we make in our politics and advocate for data-driven, social science-proven solutions that can actually reshape for the better the nature of opportunity in America. We're going to go to a quick break right now, but we'll be back to Rockefeller Foundation President Raj Shah, live on stage at Code after this. 
Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Jackie is professional yet relaxed, punctual, friendly, meets deadlines, and just makes your job easier overall. But the search for Jackie can be long and tedious, especially when you have so many other things on your plate. Indeed wants to help you find your next Jackie. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. So their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. That means they can better connect you with your Jackie. And listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I want to talk about kind of the, the obligations of Silicon Valley's wealthy. As someone who's you know, spent a lot of time overseas working with poor people, when you see that someone like Larry Ellison has bought a Hawaiian island, what, what's your honest reaction to that? When you see that, there's stuff like this happens all the time. Well, I got to be honest. My first reaction is, gosh, I wish I had a Hawaiian island. And then I catch myself and I say, no, that's not really true. Well, let's not get into that. Uh, That was the subject of your last speaker. I I think (laughs) the reality is uh, it's a wonderful thing to see uh, people making commitments to give back. Uh, and, and so we talked about the giving pledge, the right, fact we'll that more 200 yeah. uh, you know, signatories is a big deal. I do think uh, an economy driven by you know, uh, luxury items and the manufacturing and sales of luxury items for the uber rich is not the kind of economy that's going to sustain uh, the country we want to have over time and the, and the global interconnected world we want to live in. And so I think it's unfortunate. And I think it sets an example that you know, a lot of people aspire to, but probably, interestingly, because I did get to work with Bill and Melinda so much, yeah. uh, it, it, it was, I always found it fascinating that Bill, uh, that they would use their spare, not even their spare time, they would use their time and intellect and money to sit with me and others in a hut in Nigeria talking to a farmer about how improved seeds would improve rice production, would allow kids to go to school, and would change the nature of the local rural economy, you know, and their flies and it's hot and it's uncomfortable. That was probably the opposite of a, of a yachting experience, but in some ways much more meaningful. And yeah. I have had the benefit of, uh, in my life, of being part, overseeing the Haiti earthquake response, addressing famine needs in Somalia in 2011, being responsible for the Ebola crisis and the response in West Africa. People that we've brought into that work have said to me the most rewarding things they have done in their lives have been their ability to contribute in that moment of someone's need to helping others. And in some sense, the rewards from this work are are much more powerful, I think, than just pure luxury. I want to ask you about the Giving Pledge. Um, As you mentioned, you worked for Bill and Melinda Gates for a long time. 
still mentors to you. Mackenzie Bezos last week gave thirty-five billion, or a few weeks ago, half 30, of it, yeah, thirty-five yeah. billion dollars, yeah. a lot of money. Um, there's a lot of positive buzz about the Giving Pledge. Only about seven percent of the world's billionaires have signed it. About a sixth of Americans that billionaires have have signed it. A decade in, is this a policy failure or is this good enough? Well, the, the giving pledge is important because you want everybody who has the means to say we're going to give half our wealth away to make society a better place. I would love to see it also say that those resources would go primarily to the kind of social justice types of efforts we talked about earlier. So people aren't giving money to a new college auditorium. That's correct. I mean, right now it doesn't have those kinds of rules around. Right. I mean, right now there's basically right. zero rules. Right. You don't even have to do it. And, well, and, so here, and that's, the, that's the big issue I have, which is, you know, because of the nature of our economy, those families that are part of the Giving Pledge will grow their wealth at 9% a year on average and uh, currently are giving kind of 1% a year on average. So getting to giving away half their wealth is getting harder and harder and harder right. every, every year that goes by. And while philanthropy is never going to be a solution for policy and politics and changing the nature of our societies, uh, they can have tremendous impact if they move faster. At Rockefeller, we created a co-impact platform to allow Giving Pledge and other families who want to work with us in a collaborative way to accelerate their giving. And it's been a phenomenal experience. As a result of uh, just in a couple of years, we're seeking to move a million of the world's most highly impoverished women mm -hmm. out of poverty in a number of countries, uh, getting four million kids, mostly girls, in school and educated in parts of Africa and Latin America, reducing the, the child mortality, the child death rate in Liberia by 50% through investments in, in community health. And in all of those, putting in place really high quality data systems to be able to see what's happening and, and both and optimize performance. My instinct is when giving pledgers and others touch and see and understand the speed of impact you can have in this world through those kinds of pro projects, they will be inclined to give much more. I want to ask another question before we get some folks at the mics. Charlie Munger, not a guy of Silicon Valley, but he has this famous quote, which I'm sure you know, which was he was on the board of Costco, and he said that he thought that Costco did more good for the world than the Rockefeller Foundation. He was just using you guys as yeah. a stand-in for choose-your-name philanthropy. Yeah. But it's this idea that, which I'm, I'm curious whether or not you think this happens in Silicon Valley, the idea that people, maybe you're a venture capitalist, you do some impact investing, maybe you're a startup CEO, which does some good for the environment, that your day job is good enough. Yeah. Do you see that in the Valley, in tech specifically? Well, definitely, you know, five to seven years ago, uh, when I was in government, I'd come to the Valley, and visit with CEOs and companies, there was this uh, unstated, well, actually explicitly stated assumption that because we're at Facebook, we're saving the world, or because we're at this startup, we're saving the world. I don't think people would say that now, but. And they don't say that now. <laughs> and, and I think there's a new responsibility. Frankly, I think that we're having a good conversation about, you know, should technology billionaires give more and, and how can they do it optimally? That's great. In addition to that, we need to be having a conversation of how can the tools of modern technology that are transforming every part of our life and our society be deployed to lift up and support those who are fundamentally locked out of prosperity and opportunity in the world. And I see every day the opportunity for you, if you're a computer scientist, if you spent your time helping to understand how predictive analytics can identify a high-risk pregnancy in Rajasthan, India. There's a project we do. Before the woman's even pregnant, we can get three or four 
antenatal community health visits to that woman at almost no additional marginal cost and prevent either death or disability or child mortality in the first 48 hours of life following birth by that simple intervention. And I saw that uh, Mary Meeker today said, uh, was quoting Tim Cook and said, you know, Apple's gonna be known in the long arc of history as having transformed health uh, for its work on health, which is great. I just hope when that story is written, people will look back and say, it wasn't just the health of Raj Shah who went for a jog with his iWatch and was uh, you know, tracking uh, his, his heart rate the whole time, but it also saved the lives of the six million children under the age of five who will die this year from malaria, pneumonia, diarrhea, and, and other very simple causes of death, birth aphyxia, that are entirely preventable at almost no real cost. Uh, but, but we need the predictive analytic tools, yep. and we need the data visualization systems, and we need the architecture to do it, and, and we need your help from the tech sector to make that real. You had a good relationship with Republicans in, when you were head of USAID, different Republicans who are now in power. Um, you guys are now funding projects like taking down Confederate statues in New Orleans. I'm just curious how you've had to reimagine philanthropy in an age when the safety net's being cut back and presumably lots of the priorities that, you know, I know you guys have made a big push on uh, resilience against climate change. This is a different world in which you're trying to, to change than the one four years ago. Yeah. We live in a world today where I think this global tendency towards right-leaning populist leaders is, uh, is causing really deleterious effects on the nature and the fabric of society and on a future vision of a globally interconnected world. And so we've had, we have eagerly made some investments that are demonstrations of our values. Confederate statues in New Orleans with, with Mitch Landrieu or efforts to support certain groups on dealing with uh, crises at the border or efforts to support journalists uh, around the world that are often being persecuted and increasingly, as we heard earlier today, coming under threat. Uh, and that is so vital for a vibrant civil society everywhere on the planet. Uh, so we've done those things. Uh, but I'd say, the, again, the, the real solution is gonna come from a politics that is more conscientious, more informed, uh, more, more evidence and data-based, and more willing to understand that we are all in this together. And when I, was, when I was in government, I spent a lot of time, as you mentioned, with Republican leaders in the Senate and the House. And I was proud of the fact that we were the only agency at the time to get our budgets increased. We had uh, three major pieces of legislation that were passed on a bipartisan basis, including efforts to fight hunger around the world. And I came to appreciate the depth and sincerity that very conservative, faith-driven Republicans had for our global mission of ending extreme poverty. And that has stayed with me. And I believe, I'm an optimist today because I believe uh, most people in Washington and around this country wanna live in a more fair and a more just world, are willing to work together to get there, and they need leaders who will honor that and bring out those tendencies as opposed to the, t the tendencies that tend to tear us apart. And if as philanthropy, we can be the risk capital that gives people the space and be a bridge between Republicans and Democrats or uh, rural communities and urban communities or low-income countries and Silicon Valley, we will serve as that bridge 
And that, in fact, is a much more powerful contribution to the world than seeking to solve the world's biggest problems with our checkbook, which is too small for that task. Sounds good. Raj Shah, thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks to Raj for joining me on stage. We're now going to take another quick break, but we'll be back after this to play Kara Swisher in my interview with Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. Drowning in status updates and lost in endless emails? Break free with ClickUp.com, the one app to replace them all. Imagine a world where your team collaborates effortlessly in one shared space. No more chaos, just ClickUp. Your projects, tasks, and communication unified at last. Transform how you work with customizable views, seamless integration, and real-time updates. ClickUp is your shortcut to more productive days and happier teams. Join the millions of productive teams already streamlining their workflow. Visit ClickUp.com to get started. This is Recode Decode. I am Teddy Schleifer, in for Kara Swisher. For the second part of today's show, we're going to play another interview from this year's Code Conference. Kara Swisher and I talked to David Solomon. He's the CEO of Goldman Sachs. In addition to running one of the largest investment banks in the world, Solomon, we learned, was an early private investor in Uber. He said he's not worried about the ride-hailing company, even though its performance in the stock market post-IPO has been less than stellar. You know, the test in all these things is how you do over time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is an incredible platform. It's built a very big brand in a very short period of time. It's got its hands on a lot of different businesses. And the execution risk will now be seen. You know, can they execute on a lot of this? And can they, can they grow the business? Can they create paths to profitability in these different platforms? And if so, it's going to be a monster business. If not, it'll be a big business. So now, let's go back to Scottsdale to play our interview with David Solomon, the CEO of Goldman Sachs. So, Kara, if, yes. if, if Silicon Valley is about to be pretty strongly regulated, yes. demonized, yes. you know what industry actually might know a lot about being demonized, regulated? Uh, banker? Wall Street. Yes, exactly. David All Solomon? Right. Cool, come David, on out. come on out. Just another conference introduced as a demon. I mean, yeah, so no, you're, no, you're not, you're demon, not the demon now. <laughs> there, there was a while in you know, a decade ago, I know you were not the CEO at the time, but there was a while when people had some pretty negative things to say about Goldman Sachs, pretty negative things about Wall Street. You guys obviously survived. You're here today, Goldman Sachs is not some vestige of the past. What advice do you have for kind of Silicon Valley out there that is probably in the 2000, maybe in 2007 moment, maybe this is never gonna happen, everything's gonna be fine. What advice do you have for an industry kind of going through its own convulsions? Well, first of all, thank you for having me, and, um, <laughs> and um, I'm happy to be here. You know, finance grew a lot. We were just talking backstage how finance really grew and expanded. It was a very localized, fragmented business. And really, through the 80s, 90s, 2000s, finance globalized. Right. And the platforms that the big finance companies had became very large, very global, very influential, very powerful. And that, um, that brought a lot of change. Now, you know, it happened in finance, a lot of the institutions, Goldman Sachs, had been around for a long time and had morphed for a long time, yet still, when you're going through that, you have a perception of yourself and a perception of the way you're viewed um, that's 
potentially different than the perception that others have as they look at you from the outside. So the first thing you have to say about what's going on in tech and with these big platforms is that they've had enormous success. They're in the position that they're in because mm -hmm. they've had enormous success. They've done a lot of things right. Um, they've, they've, they've made a difference and they've brought products and services that have mattered to people in a very expansive way, but over a relatively short period of time. And so one of the pieces of advice I would have is that you know, you've, you've got to find a way to look and listen to what others are saying and be very, very open to the fact that the way you see yourself and the way you know, our community, our society, our markets you know, see yourself might be different than the way you see yourself. And I think that's one of the mistakes that in finance we made, certainly at Goldman Sachs, we weren't as attuned to that. So you know, self-awareness. Self-awareness. Self-reflection. Yeah. Um, I always make the joke Much that, better now, I hope. But. Yeah, definitely. One of the things that I always say is when, when you try to interview a lot of people, there is a lack of self-reflection of impact. And I think last night they started to talk about that, but it's really difficult. Um, I always make the joke that um, Silicon Valley is so not self-reflective, it's a miracle they can see in mirrors. Um, it's like, you know, it's just really hard for them. Do you think it's, it's deserved, the, the, the tech clash, or, or when you look at this? Because you're thinking about lots of things, taking these companies public, mergers and acquisitions, where finance is going. Do you think it's deserved, or what, where do you think they are in the spectrum? Well, it deserves a complicated word. As I said, these are very, very successful companies. And one of the things, when you have platforms that have a billion-plus people on them, you're gonna get a lot of the good in society, but also on something to that scale, you're gonna see some of the bad. And it's, it's not a question of deserve, it's just, it, it's one of the functions of building a big, powerful platform that has a lot of positive impact. There are other things that come with it, and it's your job to evolve. I think one of the reasons Goldman Sachs has been around for 150 years is it's had lots of periods of time where it's faced pressure, and it's found ways to evolve and become something slightly different or move in a direction that was necessary to serve its clients, its stakeholders. And you know, I think that's important for all businesses. So you have to remember, these are very young businesses, no matter what, when you look yeah. at these businesses. 20 years is a very, very short period of time in the life cycle of companies that are really going to have a lasting, you know, a lasting impact. And so I don't, I don't think about it through the lens of what's deserved. It's the reality of this is where we are. These have become very, very big businesses. They've changed the way we operate in the world. And given that, there are some positives and there are some issues that have to be dealt with. And it's their responsibility. The leaders of those organizations have to figure out both in their own actions and working collaboratively with government and, uh, and all sorts of stakeholders how they want to evolve their businesses. And if they do that successfully, they'll do just fine. And by the way, there'll be bumps. They'll make a lot of decisions that are right. They'll make some decisions that are wrong. They'll have to adjust. But by and large, they're really good companies and they'll find ways to navigate. So you think, similar to Goldman Sachs in 2007, that a company like Facebook or, or Alphabet has been too inward looking and is not really aware of the perception out there of them? That's, I mean, that's not, that's not, that's not for me to judge. I, I could just say about Goldman Sachs as we came out of the financial crisis, you know, one of the, one of the things that, that we had to wrestle with was we had been a private partnership at a very, very private company and we went public in 1999. And so we had only really been public for about eight or nine years when the financial crisis came. We had grown, we were growing about 17% compounded a year during that period of time. So the world looked very, very different because when you're growing, you think you're doing everything right. Um, we navigated, there are certain aspects of the way we navigated risk through the financial crisis where we outperformed on a relative basis versus others. And so we kind of came out of that and we went right back to doing what we, we did, not really being tuned in and sensitive to the fact that the world had changed. Right. So, you know, for each of these companies, you can't make generalizations. Every company's got to kind of look at where it is and 
you've got to focus forward. You know, how do we want to evolve you know, how we're defined, how people talk about us? And I think one of the things for sure that comes with visibility is you know, there's good things that come with visibility and there are bad things. And you've got to have really thick skin and you can't listen to everything that's said. You've got to decide what's really important. You've got to decide what you stand for. You have to listen to the criticisms, but you can't let the criticisms define you. Um, and so I think these companies will find ways to navigate this. So let's talk a little bit about, I want to get to what Goldman Sachs is doing, all the different investments you're making mm-hmm. and the shift in the financial, digital financial stuff. But first, let's stick with Silicon Valley. These IPOs, how do you assess right now? There's been some shaky IPOs, um, pretty much all of them. How do you, or do you don't think that? How do you look at the IPO market right now? We, we had Uber going out and Lyft going out. The performance has been not, not what was expected a year ago. Um, there's obviously we're waiting for Airbnb and some others to go public. How do you look at the overall landscape for tech? So look, there's, there's, there, there have been some IPOs that have underperformed expectations. There are IPOs that have done very well. Pinterest, Zoom, mm-hmm. non-tech, Levi's. Right. Um, you know, the IPO market is alive and healthy. I, I think the big fundamental change with the IPO market over the course of the last decade is the real expansion of the availability of private capital. Right. Staying public, it's private too long. Well, I'm not saying that people are staying private too long. It's just private capital is available, and it's available in size. And so I used to say to people, look, we take companies public for a living, so Please we like it public. when people go public. But right. I used to say to people, there are three principal reasons why you should go public. You need capital, you need the currency, or you're fundamentally a seller and you can't find liquidity in another venue. There's, there's a fourth reason why, and we've seen this now, that companies have taken more capital and they've gotten much larger. There is no question that there's a different kind of discipline that's applied to companies when they go through the process of going public and they have to operate in the public markets. And I'm not making a judgment that, that that's better or worse for the companies, but it's different. It's a different, it's a more structured form of discipline. And I think that's a helpful thing for companies when they get to a certain size, a certain scale. Companies are complicated. As you get bigger, you're taking lots of capital. As you get global, it's hard to manage these businesses. And public company structures add discipline you know, to that process. And I think there's a benefit to that. So I wouldn't say that these companies have stayed private too long or not. But I, I do think that there's an evolution in all this. And there's been a lot of capital available. And candidly, if I was running one of these companies and there was a lot of capital available, I'm not sure I would have handled it any differently. When you look at a handful of the companies that have not performed to expectation, I just say as someone who's taken a lot of companies public, and there was a point in my career where I ran that business for, for Goldman Sachs, one of the hardest things to do is take a company public where the expectation of how that company is going to do in an IPO is different than the reality at the time that you're going public. It's very, very hard. And those tend to disappoint. Right. So if you go back and you look historically, three companies where there was very, very high expectations in their IPO, Google, Facebook, Uber. Mm-hmm. And all three were IPOs that initially, you know, in the months right after the IPO, all were considered as not having performed as expected. Sure, but this, this all gives kind of fuel to the idea which uh, has circulated in Silicon Valley for you know, five years of the 10-year bull market, that Silicon Valley is in a financial bubble. Um, there's this you know, quote that I'm sure you know from Chuck Prince right before the financial crisis. You know, when the music stops playing, things will get complicated. Uh, but for now, the music's playing, so you got to dance. I remember that quote. You remember that quote. <laughs> to what extent do you feel like people are, are dancing too much, so to speak, in Silicon Valley? How worried are you about a bubble? Silicon Valley is a reflection of what's going on with capital and money all over the world. We, we have 
the most extraordinary push of monetary policy in the history of the world. And with interest rates basically zero all over the world, it's not surprising that people move out on the risk curve and people look for more risk assets. So you, don't so, see, you don't see it as a Silicon Valley specific problem. I think that people are looking, they're looking for returns in an environment where riskless returns are basically zero or negative, you right. know, even in a lot of places. And so I think there are places where people are out the risk curve in Silicon Valley and places where they're not. But I think all of this is a function of the fact that we've been through a long cycle of risk on. Now, you know, bubbles, you know, you think all different things about bubble. This is not, this is not 1999, 2000. This is different for a lot of reasons. But do I think that generally speaking, investors are willing to pay more for the potential for growth now than they might be at a different period of time? Yes. People are assuming in a lot of these companies, it's not that they're not good companies, we're talking strictly about valuation, that the growth trajectory over the next five years and the execution of all the things they're saying they're gonna do is gonna go off flawlessly. And some will, some won't. <laughs> and, um, and you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think about that as a bubble, I just think that people are further out on the risk curve um, than they've been at other points. Well, let's talk a specific company. You just m mentioned them. Facebook and Google had since done well, and you mentioned Uber is the third one, which has not, has been more disappointing to investors. They did have a great run-up for a long time, and they did have tons of cash from all over the place. There was tons of availability of capital for them. Assess where the, how DAR is doing and where that changes, because I think a lot of people feel this is a business that can't, that was over over-indexed, essentially. Look, look, I... And you guys were an investor. We're, we've been an investor. So one of the things I was going to say to you, say that, you know, Uber is one that hasn't done well. We've been an investor in Uber for a long time. Yeah, we've if done you got very well. Yeah, but right. from 2015, so, if you didn't But that's, maybe that's the lens that we should be looking through. Yes. Okay, okay, the fact that for five minutes in time, Uber went public and it's trading a little bit below its IPO. What I think Dara's focused on appropriately is how he's going to build value in this company, you know, over the course of the next five years. And, you know, he inherited... He stepped into you know a very very complicated platform That's a nice and a very very yeah. and a very very young company yeah. and a very very young company um, where there was a lot of change. He stepped in with no chief financial officer. He you know he stepped in with a lot of senior leadership that he needed to hire. He stepped in with multiple platforms and multiple investments. Some of which he's keeping. Some of which he's made decisions you know to de-emphasize or not to allocate capital to. So the you know the test in all these things is how you do over time. And you know this is an incredible platform. It's built a very big brand in a very short period of time. It's got its hands on a lot of different businesses. Um, and the execution risk will now be seen. You know, can they execute on a lot of this? And can they, can they grow the business? Can they create paths to profitability in these different platforms? And if so, it's going to be a monster business. If not, it'll be a big business. But I, you know, I'm, I'm watching with everybody else. We're a shareholder. I'm a personal shareholder. Um, is this an so, angel uh, investment? Or? I'm sorry? You have an angel investment? In I, um, I, I, was in, I was in some venture funds that were in very, very early. The firm also... Made some news. A, a few years ago, the firm sold, to, uh, sold the security to, um, to private wealth clients, to, to private wealth clients that was a convertible security where you earned, you earned a, a very small interest rate, but your principal converted into shares at a discount to the IPO price, and that discount was bigger the longer it took Mm -hmm. for them to go public. And I bought some of that security because at the time they were raising money privately, yep. a very high valuation, given what they were doing, and autonomous and other things, it was clear they were gonna keep raising equity. And this was basically a way of preventing yourself from being diluted hmm. 
you know, as they, as they made the path to the IPO. It turned out to be a terrific, uh, a terrific security. What about M&A? Talk about that, because one of, most, there hasn't been a lot of M&A, although the big, it's the bigger companies. There just was one, I shouldn't say that, there was one Salesforce. Salesforce just bought, yesterday. Uh, just bought a Tableau. 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 Um, that used to be a very big market for you all, for your business. How do you look at the M&A market? It's one of the cornerstone businesses that we're in. We advise companies on strategic activities. Uh, you know, we advised Tableau yesterday on its, on its sale to Salesforce. You know, yesterday morning you also saw this Raytheon, you know, UTX transaction. Mm-hmm. I think strategic activity continues to be very high. CEOs are engaged. And if you step back and you, you think about the mindset of most CEOs across lots of industries, you've got to find ways to drive growth. And so there hasn't been as much, there's been some, but there hasn't been as much M&A in the tech space there because hasn't. there's been a lot of growth. And so mm-hmm. if, you're, if you're CEO and you're operating where your business or your platform or whatever you're doing is, is, is creating organic growth, there's not a lot of reason to think about doing things strategically. But if you're operating in, in other parts of the economy where the growth is more GDP or a trend and you have to figure out how to accelerate or strengthen your position, um, it's a big part of the dialogue. Scale matters. One of the reasons scale matters is because there are very few businesses that don't use technology to sell their products, connect with their clients or customers, manufacture what they Mm -hmm. do. And the dollars needed to invest in tech platforms in almost any business require scale. They're significant. And so M&A is a way of people creating scale to protect their position. And so I think you'll continue to see, you know, meaningful activity when... If they're allowed to. I'm sorry? If they're allowed to. Well, I, I think generally... I can't I, think of a thing the government will let Google or Facebook buy at this well, point. Well, I, I think you're looking at two companies that you just mentioned at a moment in well, time. They have a lot of money. And you're asking me broadly about the broad M&A yeah, market, right. which last year was $4 trillion. Right, right. right. So, I mean, it's, I'm making a comment that I think that's going to continue to be a part of our of other economic ecosystem. Right. You know, I think that when you look at, you know, large cap tech, it's going to be trickier at this moment in time. Let's talk, about, let's talk about your business. You guys have made a big push into Marcus, uh, which is your kind of consumer-facing uh, brand for banking. JP Morgan recently announced that they're sort of, not exactly the same thing, but a digital brand, a digital native app, Finn. They were closing that down. There are a lot of companies in Silicon Valley, Robinhood, SoFi, we're having on the stage later today, everything from Square, that are sort of consumer-facing at their core. These are things with product and design, you know, I know you, this, you guys are a Wall Street company that is doing, the Wall Street institution, doing things in tech. To what extent do you feel like consumer banking is just too crowded for markets to succeed? I know you said last week that investors would be throwing money at it if it was a private company, right? Well, we're, we're very proud of what we've accomplished in building out a consumer platform. We, as you point out, we haven't been in consumer businesses. The variety, and this gets to the evolution point, there are a variety of reasons as to how the world evolved where we decided that we needed to start to find a way to move in the direction of consumer businesses. We thought that there was an opportunity to deliver a different kind of product and service that helped consumers manage their financial affairs in a much more integrated way with a lot less friction. You know, J.P. Morgan Chase is a huge, Chase is a huge consumer franchise. Um, They're gonna continue to be a huge consumer franchise. We think there are opportunities to use a digital platform in a different way. And in a small number, two and a half years, two and a half, three years, we've got four million customers. We've brought in $45 billion of digital deposits into the firm, and that's still growing, and that's very important. You know, that's very important for us. And the feedback we get from clients on the services we're providing on the platform is very, very good. J.D. Power just gave us 
an award as the number one firm in consumer loans from a customer service perspective, you, 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 which, is, which is, for a business that's a couple years old, that's, you know, that's, that's good progress. So I think there's an opportunity for a lot of people to provide products and services that take friction out of how we manage our money. And I think we're off to a good start, but we're building something for the next 20 years. the same years. thing with credit card? The, uh, the credit card is in addition to that. You know, we've, Talk we've, a little bit about how we've, we've announced We've announced this partnership with Apple, and the card is in beta. It's, it's being tested. There are hand, there are bunch of employees at Goldman Sachs and a bunch of employees at Apple that have it. I will tell you that my experience with it so far is that it's easy to use. There's less friction. The information at your disposal is terrific. It will launch, uh, you know, by the end of the summer. And, you know, Talk we're about how it came about. out. You just said, I think we'll... I'm sorry? How did it come about? Talk about the specifics. Well, what, what came about from, from our perspective, you know, we have been thinking about building an integrated digital platform. We started with deposits and unsecured loans. But our vision was always that the opportunity to put onto a digital platform everything that people need in a very integrated, seamless way. So you need to spend, you need to borrow, you need to save, you need to invest, you need to insure and protect, you need credit card functionality, you need all these products and you wanna integrate them. When you start with a white sheet of paper, you can build a much better model for how people can manage their financial affairs mm -hmm. digitally. And so we started, and so it was a natural progression to think about a credit card. We have the benefit of having relationships with a lot of these companies. They have big customer bases. And we have the advantage, unlike others that are in the credit card business, that we, we didn't have a historical business, so we built a platform for scratch. It's the first credit card platform to be built in the last 20 and years. And why Apple? What was because of the... We, we have a long historical relationship with Apple. We're very close to Apple. They were, they were thinking about the business at a time that we were thinking about it. Um, they spoke to a number of firms, and we found that kind of our vision and their vision, there was a lot of overlap in that. And right. so we, we went down the road and looked with partnerships. They can always be complicated, but we've, we've got a long history, and we're very optimistic that the partnership will do something that's, that's neat. I want to ask you about brand. Obviously, you guys were talking backstage. You're, you're competing these days for talent with Peloton, Slack, maybe even Juul, an engineer who's thinking about going to any of these places. It's interesting that you guys brand Marcus as Marcus by Goldman Sachs. To me, that means you think that Goldman Sachs, among millennials, still has some cool. How sure are you that that's true among He's asking if you're cool. Uh, well, you, well, I'm, I'm definitely not cool. So, I mean, I'm, I, there's no question about that. Look, I, the, answer, the answer to that is we're trying to figure it out. You know, so here's this company that's been around for 150 years. In any brand survey, it certainly has a very aspirational brand. That doesn't mean it's perfect and there are no detractors to the brand, but it's a pretty powerful brand. But we were entering consumer businesses, and we decided to do it under a different banner. Now, over time, you know, who knows where that will go? You right. know, over the next 20, 30 years, as we build, we build a platform, it might be that we wind up with just one brand, Goldman Sachs. It might be that we wind up with, with multiple brands, because you can segment. You know, we have a private wealth business for, you know, for ultra-private wealth that is Goldman Sachs. You know, as we, as we build other businesses, you know, we'll have to see. But the, the answer is we're thinking about that. And we actually have, with individuals, we have three brands at the moment. We have Goldman Sachs, yeah. we have ACO, which is basically a corporate counseling wealth management brand where through corporations, you know, for corporate employees, um, we help them with wealth management, finances, taxes, you know, those kinds of things. And that's a company that's been around that we bought about 15 years ago. And that's a real brand, and that brand has right. resonance. And then we've got Marcus, so but you, I we'll mean, have to see. I mean, this, this is part of a broader push by you internally uh, to kind of make the, the this sort of stodgy, Wall Street institution more relatable, right? I mean, you've done things like relax the dress code. You've done things like make sure there's uh, rules governing work on weekends. 
Do you feel like that's like a legacy item for you to make this, you know, somewhat, you know, most, most people don't have touch points with Goldman Sachs. Most people think of it as just part of the Wall Street firmament. You want this to be internally something that people can say, hey, I work at Goldman Sachs, and that is seen as a positive, cool thing to be doing in the world. Well, you're, 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 you're touching into something that's very important to us. We're a talent organization. Uh, you know, we have platforms and different kinds of businesses, but we are a talent organization. We're a professional services organization. And so attracting and developing talent is a huge part of what makes the place tick. And, and, you're, and you're aware of the perception of what Goldman Sachs I, is. I'm aware of all the different perceptions of, of what Goldman Sachs is. And one of the things that I'm also aware of is that 74% of our employee base is millennial or Gen Z. 60% of our employee base is 30 years old or less. And so, you know, the world's just more competitive than when I started 35 years ago. And you've got to be relatable. So when you, the things you're talking about, dress, how people work, et cetera, we're very fortunate that, that Goldman Sachs is one of you know, the top five or 10 places that when people are coming out of undergraduate school, they want to go start a career, get some training, get some skills, meet people, network. You know, we compete you know, very, very well. We hire about 2,500 people out of school a year. We get tens and tens of thousands of applications for those jobs. It's a very desirable place to start a career. To attract people mid-career, we have 11,000 engineers at Goldman Sachs. We compete with all the big tech platforms for engineers. We have to be a relatable organization. We've got to be a little bit more human than the way that and the organization this, was defined. And so we've been thinking about is that. Is that the same thing when you're thinking about IPOs and attracting companies? Because you, know, you have Slack doing its thing. Everyone's. How do you look at those efforts not to be involved in, in the typical roadshow atmosphere? Well, there are direct, direct listings. Yeah. Direct listings. So look, there, there's, there's been one direct listing, and now there's going to be a second. Um, we've worked on both those direct listings and an advisor. I mean, people come to us given you know, our experience around these things. Direct listing is not for everyone. You know, for starters, the primary reason people go do an IPO is they want to raise some capital. And so, you know, direct listing, you know, doesn't solve that, doesn't solve that problem. You know, Spotify was a very visible, branded platform. It'll be interesting to watch, you know, Slack, the next one. I think there'll be some direct listings, but I don't, I don't think we're going to wake up tomorrow and, and have the whole IPO process shift in this direction. And then the long-term stock exchange. We had Eric here. How do you look at those? I've, you know, I, I, met with, I met with Eric. Um, it was a while ago when he was first getting started. Probably I, when you didn't think it was going to happen. No, I actually, I, actually thought it was, I actually thought he was a super, super smart guy, and I thought it was super, super interesting. It'll be interesting to see how this all evolves. I think there's going to be a lot of disruption around equity platforms, exchanges, liquidity, um, this is an area, and, and look, we're a big, big player in it, but we also see the disruption coming in a lot of different directions. So it's definitely a space where there's, there's going to be an evolution over the next decade as to how that works. But scale, global, connectivity to the pipe that the clients right. want to be connected into, those things are super, super important. Just one final thing before the folks mm -hmm. uh, line up for questions. China, um, there's a growing, maybe somewhat bipartisan consensus that China is not as much of a friend to the U.S. as... We've thought for the last, you know, a lot, really since the, you know, the last 20 years. I'm wondering, do you think of your obligations ultimately as to just Goldman Sachs shareholders, or do you feel any obligation to the U.S. specifically at a time when there's kind of this rising tensions between the two nations? Well, we, we, we feel an obligation to a lot of stakeholders. Um, certainly, you know, our country is, is, is an important stakeholder. And, you know, I feel strongly, I would side on the fact that, that, we had a foreign policy initiative over the last you know, 30, 40 years that led us 
in a direction with China and has led to a bunch of imbalances. I look, I look for ourselves. You know, we've had a joint venture there that we've wanted to control for 15 years, and we've been told that we'd be able to make progress and move toward having economic control of that joint venture, and it, it hasn't happened. In other words, we've, it's, not, it's not a level playing field with respect to the way we operate there, or someone you know, from there can come, can come right. operate here. And I think that's gotta be, I think that's gotta be rebalanced. I think it's gonna be a long, arduous process. It's not just about trade. Um, it's not just gonna get solved in the short term. I think that there are some disagreements that we in China have. And when we've had China's a rising power, we were a power, we are a power, and we were a power that used to have 50% of global GDP. We now have 20% of global GDP. The last time we dealt with a rising power, if you go back and you look at Russia, we weren't economically entwined and you know, entangled with them, so we could isolate them. Right. We don't really have a good roadmap for dealing with a rising economic power that's a very, very significant What, what are your thoughts partner. on the trade, the tariff, the, what President Trump is doing? I would side with most people that, generally speaking, you know, tariffs aren't productive economically for our economy. I do think that we have to find ways to pressure China, and you know, I haven't come up with necessarily a better way to do that. I think the thing that becomes complicated is we've got a lot of skirmishes going on, mm-hmm. and you know, the big skirmish is over in that direction, and I think the more we can focus you know, on that, the better chance we have of bringing others along and possibly making more progress and moving forward. Okay, questions from the audience? So, uh, hi, Crawford Delpret from uh, IDC. I have a question for you in the sense of, you touched on this briefly, but think about the number of public companies. So if you go back to 97, we had about 7,000 public companies. Today we have between 3,500 and 4,000. Can you just sort of look out for us and kind of what does the public company world look like five years from now, just from the sense of you've got this concentration and this smaller number. And you talked about why companies go public, but it just seems like the theater for how we're gonna be investing in public companies is just by definition gonna change going forward. I'd love your thoughts on that. Yeah, sure, and it's, it's look, it's, you know, five years is a short period of time, but I, I, you know, I think as you look forward, here's what's fundamentally changed. If you go back when I started my career in the, you know, in the early 80s, if you were a small company and you, you needed capital, there was only one place you could really turn, the public markets. I mean, there was early stage venture and then there were the public markets. So you had you know, companies going public raising $5 million, $10 million, $20 million. Given the concentration of institutional capital and how important that is to the public marketplace, there's no market for companies like that you know, anymore. So companies have to have scale and market cap to have liquidity. Um, and in that context, you know, that delays you know, the process of when companies can go public. So, you know, I think the chance of us going back to seven, 8,000 U.S. public companies is low. You know, I do think things can ebb and flow a little bit from here. I do think we've been in a period of time where private capital's been abundant in a different environment. Private capital might not be quite as abundant. I mean, I know it's hard for anybody to imagine, but if we were in an environment where there was a 6% U.S. Treasury, there wouldn't be so much private capital available. My guess is one day we'll wake up, there will be a 6% U.S. Treasury again. So. You know, these things can ebb and flow, um, but I think that, that capital formation has just become a lot easier privately, and that will continue to keep people out of the public markets until they really need to go, and they'll generally be larger companies. Yeah. 
Thank you. Okay, very quick, one more question. Sorry, we're trying to keep on time today. I know we didn't yesterday. Go ahead. Sure. Uh, Pam Dillon, uh, Ring at B2B Software. David, my question has to do with the public and private markets again. You were discussing all the reasons that someone would want to go public. Of course, there are reasons that someone would not want to go public. Goldman is equally powerful in the private markets. Can you talk about the financial disciplines that are developing there, the reasons that CEOs might find and face similar disciplines, financial disciplines that the public markets up until now were really responsible for? So, um, you know, we spend a lot of time on that broadly, but I think one of the big reasons people don't want to go public, and I think it's a good reason, is, is the public markets do push more short-termism on performance. And that has an effect on investment decisions, and that has an effect on how you manage the business. Um, at the same point, that short-termism creates a discipline around capital allocation that, that is just different than what you get in a private company structure. One of the things that I think will be interesting to watch, and it's not going to happen with smaller businesses, but when you start raising billions of dollars of private capital at $10 billion plus of valuation, the capital sources are often investors that are generally structured to be public company investors. So you're taking mutual fund money, or you're taking pension money. You know, it's, 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 you're taking money that normally is used to certain kind of reporting protections, information protections that you're not getting in the private markets. And I do think there's a risk that we could see, you know, over time, I don't think this is a pressing issue now, but over time we could see more regulation that leads to different barometers or standards for what you have to do. So the public company standard could get translated instead of in, you know, black or white line, public or private, it could get translated into size, capital raised, investor bases, et cetera. And so that would be something that I think you could see transition. But you know, generally speaking, I'm not, I'm not religious, you know, public, private. There are benefits to both. There are differences in the way companies should be managed. I think one of the things that companies and boards and the investors that back them need to do is you need to understand that company, its motivation, its objectives, and under what structure do you have the best chance of making that company successful over time. And it's different for different businesses. One, one last thing, um, diversity. Goldman Sachs never had a female CEO. Um, I know that it's very important to you. When you one of your first things when you showed up there, you have a 33 person management committee, went from three women to seven. Pretty good. Is that fast enough? It's it's not fast enough. And I'm you know, I'm spending a lot of time on this and I've I've been out publicly setting aspirational goals for the organization and trying to create more concrete accountability in the organization for moving faster. I, I think that we've made progress, but it's not as much as I'd like us to make. There are things that we're trying to do that are more specific and more proactive to move along. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to change the lens of the filter. So for example, just using your management committee example, certain jobs at the firm have put people on the management committee. And I just said, you know what, we're not going to wait anymore. You know, who are the three or four most important women in the firm who aren't on the management committee, regardless of what job they sit in? We're putting them on the management even, committee. Even if their title didn't even correspond. Even if their title didn't correspond with what the historical practice had been. So new lens. And I think, look, these are the things that, that you have to try to do. There are some things that are, that are broad accountability and metrics and process. And there are other things where leadership, it's got to start at the top, has to say, you have to see every day that I care about this and I will move the organization forward. And hopefully you make some progress and you get the organization to follow some more. But I, we have to make, and it's not just we corporate, the corporate world, public, private, has to make more progress on diversity and inclusion. It's a business necessity and it's right. 
All right, David Thank Solomon. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to David for joining us on stage, and thanks to Kara for conducting that interview with me. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Teddy Schleifer, try and spell that. And Kara is, of course, on Twitter at Kara Swisher. Her executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Erica America. And her producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. And if you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you share it with a friend. And make sure to check out Recode's other podcasts Recode Media, Pivot, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice. Thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. Kara Swisher will be back on Wednesday. Tune in then.